Well, this afternoon we are honored to have Pastor Josh Crockett, who pastors here in Greenville at the Morningside Baptist Church. He spoke here just recently, and uh, I, I had one more place, one more spot for a speaker, and after the message I thought, I think it'd be wonderful for him to come back and challenge us once again. We appreciate his heart, his passion, his love for his people, his love for his church, and his love for Bob Jones University. His wife, Carrie, works here in the School of Health Professions. And so we're honored to have Dr. Crockett this afternoon. Would you give him a warm welcome as he comes to speak? If you have a Bible, let's turn to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, this is a romantic time of year. Yesterday was Valentine's Day, and my teenage daughters told me the best Valentine I could give them was a chocolate-covered credit card. <laughs> Just kidding. They said they wanted those two separately. Um, when, when I was in college, Bible conference was known as the real drop ad week, because that's when a lot of couples got together, a lot of couples broke up. And my junior year, I was an RA, and some guys on my hall came and said, we want to do a fundraiser for Bible conference. I said, that's great. What do you want to do? They said, we want you to go on a date-a-thon. And they said, if we have every guy on the hall pledge a dollar per date, back then there were four services a day. It was the whole week with the different uh, meals in between. They said, we could raise thousands of dollars. I said, well, let me pray about it. Okay, I'll take one for the team. And uh, this is pre-social media, so they brought out a vintage. We call that the Chictionary back then. And, <laughs> and, and we went through, and they, they set me up on 30-some dates in one week. And so it was, it was kind of a blur, uh, except I can vividly remember the freshman I took to the 9 o'clock service on Tuesday March 21st, 2000, uh, I, remember, I remember thinking, this is the woman, Proverbs 31, 29 would refer to in the New Century Version as there are, there are many fine women, but she is better than all of them. She was the one. And yesterday we celebrated 22 Valentines uh, together. And so... So next year, sign up for Viking speed dating. It can work. It works for me. As, as we've heard already, hesed love, and I can't pronounce it as well as, as Dr. Pettit can. I think if I uh, use that, that much of the back of my throat after eating lunch, th- some bad things might happen. But hesed love is, is not speed dating. It's not Valentine's chocolate. It's not sappy love songs. Hesed love is a steadfast love that this afternoon, I hope we will see, is a love that you need. You need to receive. And it's also a love that you need to share. And so we're going to look at a story, a very unlikely love story. It's not Beauty and the Beast. Uh, It's been called the Mona Lisa of Literature. Because it is short, 85 verses, but it's powerful, it's beautiful. And it's not like a lot of our favorite Old Testament stories where we see some huge miracle or God intervenes in a supernatural way. We don't see any lightning or thunder. It's just the real story of three real people 
who are all experiencing real problems. But then we see how their story actually connects to the story, the meta-narrative of Scripture, and how that connects to your story. So let's look first at the fact that you need to receive hesed. And we see this in our first character. Maybe you feel bitter and empty like Naomi. Naomi lives in a patriarchal society where all of her protection and all of her security comes from her being able to have a what? A son, a male heir. Because back then, their land was their livelihood. Their land produced their crops. It was what they ate. And the land could only be passed down to a male heir, to a son. And so Naomi is considered a successful woman. This was essentially a woman's mission was to marry, to have a son. Naomi is married. She has a son. And then for good measure, she has a bonus son. Naomi is full. Until her hometown, Bethlehem, which ironically means house of bread, experiences famine. And her husband, Elimelech, whose name ironically means God is king, says, let's leave God's kingdom and let's go to Moab. Now, Moab was about 50 miles away across the Dead Sea, basically a neighbor country. You say, okay, it's, it's kind of like Canada. Not exactly. We, we have a good relationship with Canada. We think they're a little bit weird to think Tim Hortons is better than Starbucks. And they like their brass instruments maybe a little too much. Uh, two encores, I don't know. But, but we like Canada. The Israelites did not like Moab at all. You say, what had Moab done? Did they send a spy balloon over the Dead Sea? Like, what did they do to have this reputation? Well, it actually starts with their origin story. The origin story of Moab is a man a lot like this man, Elimelech, Lot, takes his family from the place of God's protection to a pagan place, the city of Sodom. When angels come and say, you need to leave Sodom, as we heard about last night when Dr. Pettit was preaching, some of his family actually stayed. Perhaps most of his family stayed. He and his wife, his wife and his daughters are leaving, but his wife turns back. And what happens? She's a victim of assault. She, she turns around. She turns into a pillar of salt. And so he and his daughters escape this horrific fire and brimstone annihilation of the city of Sodom. So now here he is living in a cave with his two daughters. Now again, remember in a patriarchal society, a woman's mission is to have a male heir. And so his two daughters have a terrible idea. They say, let's make some moonshine, get their dad drunk, and get him to impregnate them. And the child that's born to the older daughter is a boy named Moab. He is the father of the Moabites. So a cringy, incestuous origin story for Moab, but it doesn't get any better. The king of Moab, Balak, tries to hire an Israelite prophet named Balaam to curse his own country, to curse God's people. And instead, kind of like Shrek, he ends up cursing his donkey. And so then the Moabite king says, okay, I'm going to try a new strategy. He sends in Moabite women to seduce the Israelite men. And now God says, I am putting a curse on the country of Moab. You cannot enter the assembly of God's people to the 10th generation. Another Moabite king rises up, a big, big king named Eglon. 
And Eglon conquers the Israelite people, rules over them for 18 years until a left-handed judge named Ehud takes out his dagger and thrusts it into the huge belly of King Eglon. And, and the dagger is literally sucked into, I don't know if you call them egg rolls or Eglon rolls, but into the belly of King Eglon. And so Ehud delivers God's people, Israel, from Moab. You say, did that improve the relations between this country? No. In fact, when we come to Psalm 108, verse 9, God says, Moab is my washpot. Now, we won't go any deeper into what that word means, but it wasn't a term of endearment. So here is Elimelech, Mr. God is my king, taking his family from Bethlehem into this pagan place into Moab. You say, yeah, but he wanted to survive. He didn't want his family to die. Well, look with me at verse 3 in Ruth chapter 1. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, does what in Moab? Died. So that didn't work out. But she was left and her two sons. Verse 2 says their names are Malon and Kilion. If, If you love Star Trek and you want your kids to have a Bible name, there you go. Their names mean sickly and dying. Can you imagine introducing your sons? Here's my son COVID and his brother cancer. And, and they, unfortunately, they live up to their names. In verse 5, they both die. We don't know what happens. Was it a camel accident? Were they simultaneously kicked by a donkey? Somehow, both of these young men are dead. What we do know is what happens to Naomi. She is changed. Her name means pleasant, sweet. In the South, we might call her sweetie pie, sugar. Her name changes. In verse 20, she says, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me sweet. Call me Mara. Bitter. Because the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. She blames God. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Have you ever experienced a loss that, that caused you to feel empty? Maybe it was something that you lost. Maybe it was someone that you lost. I was at lunch with a student a couple of weeks ago, and he said his grandmother passed away at thank, Thanksgiving, and that his, his family, especially his mom, is still reeling with the pain and grief of that. I remember losing three of my four grandparents the first three semesters I was here in college. Sometimes even your best friends just don't know how to respond. They don't understand the emptiness that you feel when you lose someone, when you lose something like that. I remember when my wife lost her grandfather. We took our two little daughters at the time up to the casket. My wife was crying. She looked down and she said, Papa, we love you. And our three-year-old looked up and said, Mom, he can't talk. She didn't get it. She didn't understand what was happening, the emotions that my wife was processing. Maybe you've experienced this loss and you feel this profound emptiness. And that emptiness, like we see in the life of Naomi, can actually lead to bitterness. Where you say, why God? Why me? Why have you allowed this? I mean, here is Naomi having lost all three of the men in her life. Her protection is gone. Her security is gone. She has nothing now. But Hesed is for the bitter and empty. Hesed is for the discouraged and disenchanted. If you are despairing of life, 
Hesed is for you. And that brings us to the second character who needs Hesed. Maybe you feel like an invisible outsider like Ruth. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 19. We're going to see that when Ruth follows Naomi to Israel, she's treated like she's invisible. I'm going to give you a really simple grammar test. Every time I say a pronoun, you tell me, is it singular or plural? So they. Plural. Good. Two, that's Naomi and Ruth, plural, went until they, plural, came to Bethlehem and it came to pass when they, plural, were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them, plural, and they said, is this Naomi? Singular. Not, is this Naomi and her daughter-in-law? Not, is, is this Naomi and her friend? They completely ignore Ruth. She's invisible. You say, why? Well, she has three strikes against her. Number one, she's an immigrant from a hated country. And according to that curse in Deuteronomy 23, she shouldn't even be allowed into the assembly of God's people for 10 generations. She grew up worshiping what 1 Kings 11 would call the detestable god Chemosh. They probably even sacrificed their babies to Chemosh. There is nothing kosher about Ruth. One commentator said she sticks out like a ham sandwich at a bar mitzvah. Or like little Dora who came up on the platform during the bluegrass for all of us on this side who saw this little three-year-old with her backpack. I guess her map was telling her to to come listen to bluegrass. (laughs) Kind of expected the camera to pan in on her and and her say, Dora likes bluegrass. Do you like bluegrass? (laughs) The second strike against Ruth is that she was a widow. And chapter 1 indicates she probably experienced infertility. She and Malon are married for 10 years, but they're childless. The third strike is that she was poor. Now, to the Jews... Those were all three signs of God's judgment. Three strikes against her. And so they treat her like she's invisible. Makes me think of another outsider, the little Egyptian servant to Abraham who he impregnates and then sends out into the desert to die with her baby. And yet Hagar sees that God provides for her. God protects her. And so Hagar looks to heaven and says, you, God, you see me. You are El Roy. You are the God who sees. When to everybody else, I'm invisible. To everybody else, I'm an outsider. With all these strikes against me, you see me. And so in the same way, Ruth is seen by Boaz. He, he praises her hesed to Naomi. In chapter 2, verse 12, this is what Boaz says. The Lord recompense your work. And a full reward be given you of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you are come to trust. Can you imagine the impact of those words on Ruth? Those are the first kind words she's heard since leaving her family, everything she knew in Moab. And not only are these being spoken by a wealthy, powerful man, but he says, I pray the God of Israel will see you. I pray the God of Israel will reward you, will recompense your hesed. I pray that he will put his wings over you and protect you. Will you show hesed to someone who feels invisible? Maybe it's an immigrant. Maybe a homeless person. Maybe someone from a a low-income part of town. During the summer of 2020, I had the privilege of joining our mayor and several other pastors to listen to Lillian Brock Fleming 
She's a civil rights activist who's lived in our town since the 1960s. Her parents led the local NAACP. They marched peacefully with Dr. King. And she told us stories about being harassed, being threatened, being shouted at, and even shot at as a kid. And she said, all we wanted was to be seen. All we asked for was to be seen. Maybe you could show has said by just seeing a student who sits by themselves every time they go to the dining common saying, can I sit with you? Can I talk to you? In 2016, a college football star who was headed to the NFL went to a local middle school and as he walked in the cafeteria, he noticed a little boy named Bo Paskey was autistic who always sat by himself. And so this star college football player comes and asks, can I sit with you? And sits and eats pizza with little Bo. This photo that was taken went viral, and the next week, all the students wanted to sit with little Bo. He was a hero. And Bo's mom said that she was moved to tears by this player's kindness, that, that he would show kindness to her son. In the same way, Ruth is overwhelmed with gratitude in verse 13. She's a homeless outsider. She's an unwanted immigrant from pagan roots. She's broke. She's homeless. She's dirty from dumpster diving in Boaz's field. She thinks, why are you caring for me? Why are you treating me like a princess? Chapter 2, verse 15, Boaz tells his men, he says, don't leave Ruth just the leftover grain on the corner of the fields. That's our legal responsibility. Instead, leave her the choice sheaves. Or in our context, we might say, don't just leave her the Papa John's slices, leave her freshens. By the way, your future self will thank you for limiting your pizza intake in college. So that's a great place to go. In verse 20, Naomi looks at this and she says, not only has Ruth shown hesed to me, but Boaz, she blesses him for his kindness, for his hesed. And now we recognize romance is in the air. There's something there that wasn't there before. And this brings us to our third character who needs hesed. Maybe you feel lonely as a single person like Boaz. He's introduced in chapter 2, verse 1, as a mighty man. He's strong, of wealth, he's rich. We're going to find out he's also godly and he's kind. And some of you single women are saying, check, 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 mate. Why? Why is Boaz the most eligible bachelor in Bethlehem? Why is he still single? Well, some scholars say it might be because Matthew 1 tells us that his mom's title was the prostitute, Rahab. Others say maybe this, this worthy man of godly character was looking for an equally worthy wife. In chapter 3, verse 11, it uses that same word worthy that's used of, of Boaz to describe Ruth as well. But whatever the case, we know that Boaz is single and he's not getting any younger. In chapter 3, he calls Ruth his daughter, showing that apparently he's a little bit older. And then he says, you have shown me more hesed because you have not gone after the young men. So Boaz gets it. He, Boaz has seen the swole young guys in the field with their sleeveless tunics, flexing their ripped guns. He looks down beneath his, his robe and he's got his white sketchers on and his dad bod. He, he recognizes... I'm an older guy. How is someone his age 
going to find a wife? How is he going to, to pass on his family's inheritance without a male heir? See, Valentine's Day is one of the hardest days for single people. Maybe some of you are thinking, this is my last semester and I haven't gone out with anyone. Maybe you're thinking, I was in a relationship, but now it's over. Will I ever find someone? For the first time in our nation's history, there are actually more single adults in America than married adults. And that's not easy. God made us for relationship. God made us for community. He made us to be loved. And yet, for millions of Americans, they are lonely. They need hesed. We've seen how all of us need hesed. Whether you're bitter and empty, whether you're an invisible outsider, whether you're a lonely single person, whatever you are struggling with, whatever you feel like is, is dominating your life, you need hesed. Now let's see how you need to share hesed. Maybe if you missed the earlier messages, you're wondering, well, what exactly is hesed? Hesed is steadfast love, it's loyal love, it's mercy, it's kindness. It's used nearly 250 times in the Old Testament. In, in fact, this word has so many potential English translations that you could actually take a whole Bible conference, like a diamond, looking at the different facets of the word hesed. Miles Coverdale, when he was translating the Bible in 1535, couldn't come up with an English equivalent, so he did a mashup, and he invented a new word. He took loving and kindness and put them together, and that's how he translated it. One of the reasons for that is because hesed is often expressed in action. So in chapter 1, Naomi needs hesed, and Ruth gives one of the most famous, powerful speeches in all of history. In fact, that speech is still used 3,000 years later in many weddings. Whither you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. But does Ruth stop there? No, Ruth doesn't just say this beautiful speech and send Naomi on her merry way. Ruth says, I am willing to leave my family, to leave my homeland, to leave everything, to go be an outsider, to be an immigrant so that I can stick to you, so that I can show you Hesed. In chapter 2, Boaz shows Hesed by praying this powerful prayer over Ruth. But in chapter 3, God uses Boaz to answer his own prayer. He, he says, I pray God will feed you. And what does Boaz do? He feeds her. He says, I pray God will provide you a husband. What is Boaz willing to do? He's willing to marry her. He says, I pray God will give you a good home. And who's willing to give her a good home? Boaz. He says, I pray that God will give you refuge under his wings. In chapter 3, verse 9, guess who spreads his wings over Ruth? It's Boaz. See, often God wants to answer your prayers through you. God wants to show His hesed through you. When my wife and I lived in Indiana, we had some good friends of Osberg's, and we would often go out to eat. And one fall, Ball State University was having a lecture series. So we said, well, let's go out uh, to a meal, and then we'll go to these lectures. And the first lecture was Carl Rove, the architect of the W. Bush campaign, uh, he was going to be speaking on his experience being on Air Force One with the Commander-in-Chief on 9-11. I, I was into politics in college. I thought, this room is going to be filled with college students. We get into the back of the auditorium, and it's all white hair. It, from the back, it looked like a Q-tip box as we're looking out. No students anywhere. 
The next week, the speaker was a guy named Jamie Torkowski. I was like, Jamie Torkowski? I'd never heard his name before. We pull up on campus, and there are students lining the sidewalks around the building, down the sidewalk. Hundreds had to go to an overflow room. And so we go in, we're wondering, what is he going to talk about? And basically, he just tells the story about a young woman, a 19-year-old named Renee, who had been sexually abused, started abusing drugs, and OD. She actually took the razor blade that she cut the cocaine with and cut the F word and the word up on her forearm. That's what she thought of herself. And, and he and his friends found her in this condition and they said, we're going to take a week off of work. We're going to use our vacation days. We're going to stay with her 24-7, helping her get clean, helping her go through withdrawal, feeding her, praying over her, loving her, showing her hesed. And then Jamie wrote a synopsis of the story on, online, and it went viral. He entitled it to write Love on Her Arms, where she had written an obscenity as her self-designation they were going to write hesed. See, hesed is, is not only something that you need to receive, it's something that you need to share. And that brings us to chapter 4, the climax of the story, where we see how does God give hesed to us? In chapter 4, verse 4, the audience almost gasps when a nearer kinsman than, than Boaz shows up and he says, okay, so, so I can add to my property and make my name bigger, sure, I'll redeem, I'll redeem Naomi's land. And everyone's like, no! Everyone reading the story is shipping Boaz and Ruth. Without her, Boaz is what? Ruthless. <laughs> and so in, in a pro-gamer move, Boaz says, um, by the way, if you want to redeem the land near a kinsman, you also have to marry Ruth, the Moabite. And the guy almost jumps back. He says, no, there's no way. There's no way I want to stain my family name by marrying this Moabite. Now, here's the irony. The, the author calls this guy in the Hebrew, Poloni Almoni. You say, what is that, some kind of Hebrew rap? No, that's a humorous way of saying Mr. What's-His-Face. So Ruth chapter 4 is all about preserving men's names. Verse 10 talks about raising up the name of Elimelech, raising up the name of Malon. Verse 11 talks about praying that Boaz's name would be remembered. Verse 14 is a prayer that Obed's name would become famous. Verse 17 is the official giving of Obed's name. And the chapter ends with almost 20 more names. But God makes this selfish guy who wanted to make a name for himself, who wanted to make his name famous, he makes him forever nameless. Do you want your name to be lost? Live for yourself. Live for self-love. Do you want your name to last? Then show Hesed love. Boaz and Ruth risk their names, risk their reputations, risk everything to show Hesed, and God makes their name last. You say, how? Well, not only is this the only book in the Old Testament that's named after a non-Jew, Little Moabite Ruth. I mean, it could have been the book of Boaz, the book of Naomi. They actually have more lines in the story. 
but it's named after Ruth. But not only that, but in verse 13, the Lord gives Ruth a baby boy named Obed and she restores life to Naomi. Naomi goes from being empty to full, from being bitter to sweet. She has a wealthy, respected son-in-law who has redeemed her land. Now she has a male heir, but there's even more. Verse 22 says, And Obed, Ruth's son, begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. Ruth. Moabite Ruth is the great-grandma of the great king of Israel, King David. Talk about a lasting name. But it gets even better. If you would, turn with me over to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. It, it almost seems strange that this little book of Ruth ends with a family tree. The, the part of the Bible we often skip over, the genealogies. Oh no, the Hebrew phone book again. All these weird names I don't understand. Well, the New Testament starts with a family tree. Matthew begins his gospel with Jesus' genealogy, and we're going to see how these two family trees actually connect. Now, there's something else unique about Matthew's genealogy. He includes the names of four women. Now, again, in a patriarchal culture, that just wasn't done. Typically, you have the name of the father, begat the son, begat the grandson, begat the great-grandson. But Matthew includes the names of four women in Jesus' family tree. You say, why? Well, let's look at their names. Look with me in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 1. The first woman is Tamar. Now, there's going to be two common denominators with all four of these women. Tamar is a Canaanite outsider who posed as a prostitute to get pregnant by her father-in-law to commit incest. In verse 5, Rahab is a Canaanite outsider known by the title the prostitute. In verse 5, Ruth is a Moabite outsider with three strikes against her. And in verse 6, Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, making her a Hittite, an outsider, who's also known famously for committing adultery with King David. So four women who are outsiders with shady pasts. Why would Matthew include them in the family tree of the Messiah? In the family tree of Jesus? Because he is a different kind of king. He's a king who's full of hesed. Matthew 1.21 says, His name will be called Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. He delights in redeeming sinners. No matter who you are. No matter where you're from. No matter what you've done. To the bitter and empty who feel like you've lost everything, he says, I will restore you. I will redeem you. I make all things new. To the invisible outsider, he opens his arms and says, you are welcome in my father's house. I'm opening the door of God's family for Gentiles, for outsiders, for pagans, for people with a past. And your name will be written in the book of life. Your name will never be forgotten. To the lonely single person, he says, I am a friend who sticks closer than a brother. In the pain of your loneliness, I will never leave you. I will never, never, never forsake you. Will you receive the hesed of King Jesus? And once you do, will you share that same hesed? I heard the story of a pastor who was telling about a couple in his church and 
they had been praying about adopting. And finally, there was a local opportunity for them to adopt the baby of a a teen girl who had an unexpected pregnancy. They were so excited. Well, five months into the pregnancy, the social worker called them in and said, we have horrible news. The doctors have determined that the baby has a severe case of spina bifida, perhaps the, the worst they've ever seen. This little baby will not be normal. No amount of surgeries will be able to fix her. She probably won't even live to see her second birthday. We're so sorry. We know this isn't what you signed up for when you started the adoption process. And so we, we completely understand. We, we, we're not even sure how to counsel the, the young woman. We don't know if she's going to keep the baby or not. But we just wanted to let you know that if, if you feel like you need to back out, we completely understand. And so this couple are sobbing. They drive home. Their, their hopes have been dashed. Their dreams of this little girl living a normal life as their daughter are completely crushed. And, and they essentially are assuming that this apparently isn't the Lord's will. We'll just politely back out. The next morning, the wife wakes up and she, she grabs her husband and, and she says, we need to take the baby. And the husband says, well, I'm open to it. I'm praying about it. But what changed your mind? And she says, well, last night I had this dream. And in the dream, I was in this huge stadium with 100,000 people. And in the center of the field, there was this line of, of people, and each of them were carrying a baby, healthy babies, beautiful babies. And they would come to a microphone at the center of the field, and they would say, who wants this child? And someone would say, I do. And a family would come out, and they would take the baby, and they would go back to their seats with smiles across their face. And she said, one after another, each of these babies were joyfully received by the different families until the very end. She said, at the very end, the baby was scarred and disfigured and deformed. It was obvious this this baby would never live a normal life. And they said, and who wants this child? And she said, it was deathly silent. Seemed like eternity. She said, it was probably several minutes Until finally, a man down front lifted his hand and said, I'll take that child. And he walked out to the center of the field and he he took the baby gently. He held her to his chest. And as he turned around, she said, "I, I looked in my dream and it was Jesus. And as I looked closer, I realized that the girl nobody wanted was me with all of my scars and all of my sin and all of the deformity for the the ways that I have messed up. And she said, but Jesus said, I'll take that child. He wanted to take me. And if He has shown me that kind of love, she said, I want to take this child. And as long as she lives, I want to show her God's love. Richard Sibbs said, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There's more hesed in Christ than sin in us. Why should you show hesed to others? Because He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His hesed is more. 
The very beginning of the New Testament connects to this little story of Ruth to introduce us to a Savior King who doesn't care about having this pious, perfectly pure pedigree. Instead, He is a King who wants us to know that His great-grandmothers were outsiders and prostitutes with shady pasts who totally messed up because He wants us to see that He is the King of Hesed. Jesus offers faithful love to the unfaithful. O come, all you unfaithful, come, weak and unstable. Christ is born for you. Let's pray. Father David says in Psalm 63 that your Hesed love is better than life. And I realize that in a group of young people this morning that there may be students here who are despairing even of life itself. Because of whatever circumstance in life, they're looking at their life and they're saying, I'm, I'm unloved, I'm invisible, I'm lonely, I'm all by myself. But that you do see them. That you are the King of Hesed. That you welcome, that you intentionally in your family tree want us to know the story of Ruth and the story of Rahab and the story of Bathsheba and Tamar. Because you want us to see that your hesed and goodness follow us all the days of our lives. That you will pursue us with your faithful love. Father, I pray that you would help the bitter and empty, the invisible outsider, the lonely single person help all of us to receive your hesed and help all of us to share your hesed with others. We thank you in the beautiful, wonderful name of our King of love, Jesus. Amen.